Would you please stand with me? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Do you desire to experience God's power in your life? When you think about the power of God, what I do not mean is, you know, for $9.95, you can buy a vial of water or a handkerchief, you know, at midnight, and you will receive the power of God, something that's been blessed. We've come across like the last 30 years where the power of God has been misused for all sorts of reasons that it kind of becomes a joke. It was a phrase that guys like Robert Tilton use, you know, late at night on TV. But really, we have to understand some sense of the idea of the power of God because these are the very last words that Jesus has before he ascends. In Acts 1, he leaves his followers with the promise of power. He says, you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And then you will be ready to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, in Jesus, you know, in true Jesus fashion, he doesn't give a lot of detail. He doesn't specify when or how or where that power is going to fall upon them. But he does say it's going to happen. So the disciples are simply left to wait. We hate waiting. I hate waiting. And here they are waiting on God and this promise that he offered to them. J.I. Packer said that waiting on God is hard because it's when we wait that we realize that God is not in a hurry. Many of you know that to be true. If you've been a Christian for any, 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 even just a short amount of time, wanting him to move in your life and experience his power, waiting is a very real part of that. And why is it that we have to wait? Why is waiting, why is it in the Bible that somebody's always waiting on God? Why is waiting so central to our faith? And I think that you know, this, this, this passage in Acts 2 challenges us to consider waiting in a different light, which is this. Perhaps we haven't experienced the power of God because we're not ready for it. We're not ready for what it is that God wants to offer to us. And it's in the act of waiting that it reveals whether or not we are truly ready. 
There's all sorts of kind, there's all there's all sorts of kinds of waiting. But the waiting that this passage talks about is a waiting in readiness. The waiting of a, a pregnant mother at 39 weeks who has straightened up the nursery for the 50th time that day. Waiting with anticipation, waiting with expectation, and waiting with readiness. There's a difference between waiting around and waiting with readiness. And as we come to the disciples today in Acts 2, they are still in this season of waiting for this promised power that God offered to them. And it's in verse 1 that we get a pretty fascinating picture. In the simplicity of verse 1, if we just understand the context of what this, what's happening in this verse, we get a picture of what it looks like to wait in readiness. The very first part of verse 1 says that the day of Pentecost has arrived. Now, what does Pentecost mean? Pentecost is not the name that was given to this event in Acts 2. Pentecost is actually the name of a festival in the Jewish calendar. Pentecost actually comes from the Greek word meaning 50th. Because uh, Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, happened on the 50th day after Passover. Now, Passover was also a harvest festival, which meant that at the end of the harvest season, after the long months of farming and then harvesting, uh, Pentecost would be the celebration at the end of that season to celebrate all that you brought in and all the blessings that you had received that year. Pentecost was a pilgrimage festival, which meant that Jews would travel from near and far, from the furthest reaches away from Jerusalem. All the Jews that had been scattered throughout the world throughout their history, they would travel back to, back to Jerusalem, back to that spiritual home to celebrate as one people. So Jerusalem, in verse 1, is packed. In a pilgrimage culture, which we are not, just to give you an idea, we go to Rajamundri in India. And when we serve there, uh, it's actually a place that is, Rajamundri sits on the Godavari River, which is the third holiest river in Hinduism. And every 10 years, there's the Pushkar Temple uh, uh, Festival. And so people will travel from all over into Rajamundri, which is a city of about uh, 500,000 people. And it happened last year. And to give you an idea of how many people came to this festival and pilgrimage there, in a city of 500,000 people, there was over 30 million pilgrims that came into the city. Okay, so Jerusalem in a pilgrimage culture was packed. And it's about to have, you know, one of the most incredible events in history take place before it as God moves his pieces in place. Pentecost is the context. So where are these 120 people? If you look at the end of the verse, it reads that they were all together in one place. And Acts 1.14 already told us what this group of 120 persons did whenever they got together. It says that they all, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. So what does it look like to wait in readiness for the power that God promises to us? Well, if we take verse 1, it says very simply that whenever everyone else is getting ready for a party, these people are devoted to prayer. Whenever everyone else is looking for a good time, their priorities are different. Boy, is that not the context that we live in, in a wealthy, affluent culture? The, the search for the next party, the next good time, the next moment of leisure is all around us. People looking for that next moment of escape, and if we're honest, is it not easy to get caught up in that search ourselves, even as Christians? So on the one hand, we say, yes, I want God's power to show up in my life for my children, for my marriage, for my family, for my job, and yet, you know what? I'm really excited to start this new show that I heard is really good. Or I really am eager to start this new project on the house. Or I'm going to go ahead and start planning my next vacation. 
and spend my time doing that. It's far too often that we settle for waiting and recreation rather than waiting in readiness. Are we Christians that are looking for that power or are we just looking to kind of get by? We don't really, in those moments where we don't wait in readiness, perhaps it's because we don't really anticipate the coming of that promise. We don't anticipate that God does want to give us a power that is beyond this world. And we have to be challenged that that's exactly what God does want to give us. And in this one simple verse, these people are ready for God's promises to them. 50 days of devoting themselves to prayer. And if you think about it, they would, this same group of people years before would have been at this same festival, this same party. But now, because of Christ's promise to them, it's completely reorganized their planner and the way they spend their time. So for us, are we ready for God's power if his promises do not reorganize our priorities? And in verse 1, we see a people that are ready. And then in verses 2 through 4, the spirit of power arrives in extraordinary fashion. And we see three things happen. We see wind, we see fire, and we see tongues. Now, as we consider this passage, I want us to recognize uh, that it's really easy to take this passage that can be familiar to us, and we look at it and we see this miraculous moment in history, and we kind of push it to the side because we say, you know what, that's not really my experience, but that's just a part of what happened to these people in this incredible time and place in the book of Acts. You know, these are things that happen during that time, and we kind of disregard it, and we always miss out on what this really means for us. And part of that is because we often become too preoccupied with the event and not the God behind this event. Let me put it clearly. Pentecost is not about speaking in tongues. Pentecost is about God revealing his purpose and his power. So as we try to understand uh, this miraculous event and these three things, we need to ask a deeper question. Is what is it that this event tells us about God's heart and his desire for his people in these last days that he is beginning here in this moment? Let us not just simply ask, what are these people doing? But what ultimately is God doing through these people? So then we might be able to understand what this means for us as his people. So the first two things we see described are that the house is being filled with the sound like a mighty rushing wind. And the second is the appearance of tongues of fire. Both of these are not arbitrary. Both wind and fire are rich with meaning to uh, Jews because they occur all throughout the Old Testament at very significant moments. And it's because God would use wind and fire throughout Israel's history to reveal his power and his presence in visible, tangible ways to his people. So how do we know God is with us? Well, he would often come and reveal himself in wind and with fire. And so if we think about wind and when it shows up in the Old Testament, think about the wind or the spirit, which is an interchangeable in both the Old and New Testament. Is that at creation, God breathes the wind, his breath, his life into Adam's nostrils. And then you see winds parting the, way, the waters of the Red Sea. You see wind uh, settling on Mount Sinai in a windstorm enveloping the entire mountain when God's presence comes to rest on the mountain with his people. You see wind whenever it gives life in Ezekiel's vision to the valley of dry bones. All throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself as wind and his power as wind in these moments where he's beginning a new work and he's creating something new. And then you have the fire where God reveals his presence and his power as fire throughout the Old Testament. With Moses at the burning bush, he envelops the entire mountain of Sinai in fire as well. 
And then as he leads his people in the wilderness, what do we see? We see a pillar of fire by night to mark his presence and his guidance for his people. And what does the fire mean? Well, all throughout this Old Testament, when God presents himself as fire, it's, it's these moments where he's calling and shaping and leading and purifying his people for a new work. So here in Acts 2, we see both the wind and the fire appear. So what's different than all the other times that this has happened before? Well, if you notice, the wind begins to fill the house and it fills them. The fire parts and it settles on every single person there. And it says they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how do we look beyond the event and ask, what is it that God is doing that reveals his heart and his desire for us? What is the fire and the wind doing this reveal to us? Well, I think as we take all of this into account, we would understand that God is, if we understand what we're reading, is that God is doing a new work here. And it is, is his desire now in these last days that every single person in that room and all of us that call upon the name of the Lord, we are made into something new where you become a walking, talking, burning bush. You become a walking, talking pillar of fire. You are a tabernacle. You are a temple because the spirit of God dwells in you, which means that in these last days, you are the visible, tangible expression of God's power and presence in the earth. What a calling that is. Where else do we go to find God's presence? What building do we point to? What, what, what altar? We don't point to those things anymore. We point to a people. And it's in this moment in Acts 2 where God begins this new work, which means that you too, if we understand this, you are called to lead. You are called to call others and to breathe life into this world because the spirit of power resides in you and has given you a new purpose. And we see in verse 4, this third sign of God's power is that each one is filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what are these tongues, and what, are, uh, what is their significance? Well, much has been said about tongues uh, throughout, you know, and what they mean in the Scriptures. Is, are tongues known human languages? Uh, are tongues a private personal prayer language? Or are tongues just uh, kind of a spiritual language that we don't understand what they mean unless we are given the interpretation or somebody else's? All right. Well, the good news is this passage does not let us get uh, lost in the forest for the trees because it makes it very simple in this passage what tongues is referring to. If you look at the Greek, tongues are referring to known human languages. And there's really no way around that. It's talking about they're speaking in known human languages. And so they're known human languages <clears throat> but we also get in verses 6, 8, and 12 that everyone is understanding this to be in their own language. So everyone's seeing this miraculous event where they're speaking in tongues that are not their own and in the tongues of the nations. And so if the tongues are these known languages, what then is their significance? And why? what is God doing in giving his people the ability to speak in these foreign tongues? Well, again, to understand that, we have to go back to the Old Testament all the way back to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, God divided the nations. And he sent them and scattered them over the face of the earth. And the reason is because uh, it says in Genesis 11:1 1, that all mankind spoke one language at this time. And as mankind grew and began to fill the earth, they only just were in this downward, downward spiral of continued sin and rejection and despondency and debauchery. 
They just continued to sin more and more and more, and they grew and they were creative in the ways that they sinned. And so finally, all of mankind gathers together and becomes unified, and they say, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And the text is essentially driving home the point that their desire is that they would reach glory and immortality on their own terms and apart from God's terms. And so God sees this and he comes down and it says that he confuses their language. He confuses them and he puts this huge roadblock in their ability to get this work done because they don't understand each other anymore. And then once this happens, they completely abandon the work and it says that they all left the tower and they went their own way and they were scattered across the face of the earth. And then in Genesis 12, in the very next chapter, almost ironically, God comes to Abraham and he addresses this issue. And he says, Abraham, I have a promise for you. And part of that promise is that through you, I am going to draw all of those nations back to myself. All of these nations belong to me. And I'm going to use you to draw them back to me. And that promise to draw all nations to himself, does it not hang throughout the entire Old Testament? This was Israel's job was to be a blessing to the nations, but they completely abdicated that responsibility. We just got done with the sermon series in the book of Amos, and what did we learn? Well, Israel was always looking for that next party, always looking for the next good time, always looking for more comfort and more ease instead of being a people of power and prayer and introducing the world to the true God. And so we get to the New Testament, and this promise still hangs in the air until Acts 2. Because it's in Pentecost that we see God make good on his promise to draw the nations back to himself. And it's in giving the power of these tongues, these foreign tongues, that God is undoing the power of Babel and once again reaching out to the nations in miraculous ways to draw them back to himself. Because it's not just what these, that the fact that these 120 persons spoke in foreign languages, it's also what they spoke about. It says in verse 11 that they spoke in other tongues about the mighty works of God. And so what is God doing? Pentecost reveals God's purpose and plan and how it is that he is going to draw all nations back to himself. It is through the bold, spirit-filled proclamation of Jesus Christ to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay? Pentecost is not simply about this moment in time that God gave the miraculous ability to speak in tongues. It's about something far more than that. That God's priority is that he is a missionary God that is going to go out and reconcile the world to himself, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way he is going to go about doing that is he's going to empower his people with his spirit to accomplish that mission. It is not through like, you know, hashtag movements. It's not through legislation. It's not through your political party. The only way this broken world is going to be healed is through that proclamation of the gospel. And it's in this moment when God begins something entirely new. He shows his devotion and his purpose from then until the end of time. It is to preach Jesus to the nations. So when we ask ourselves, do we want to experience the power of God? We have to first ask the question, are we willing for God's purposes to be our purposes? Because if not, then that power will always be used someplace else and not in our own life. Do we not desire God's power in our life? Well, goodness, let us be a people of power by adopting those purposes. Are we a church that's ready to embrace God's mission? And not just in India. Not be a part of a church that embraces God's mission, but for all of us 
to embrace that mission and that purpose and to trust that the best version of you, the most powerful version of you, is the one that is devoted to what God wants you to be devoted to. Because when we do, when we do commit ourselves to that purpose, why would God not empower us to accomplish that which he's called us to do? And so as we consider ourselves as a church and we consider this, we consider God's priority of mission to proclaim the good news. Is that our priority? As we think about God's mission, I think there's a number of ways that we think about that that actually reflect our unreadiness to embrace that purpose that God has for us. And I think we don't experience God's power because we don't embrace his purposes, and I think we don't embrace his purposes because we we kind of push back against it. And we show our unreadiness in a number of ways, and I think this text, this passage addresses three of those ways because the first is that we can say is that, you know, I, I don't really know where to begin. You know, yes, God calls us, but I don't really know where to begin and how to start. Well, just think about the context of this passage for a second. These people wait 50 days, these 120 persons in prayer. And what is God doing? He's moving all the nations to Jerusalem. And they're not even aware of it. They're aware of the festival, but they're not aware of what God is doing. He's bringing all of the people that he has ordained and orchestrated to hear those words. He's bringing them from the furthest reaches of the world to Jerusalem for the right moment and the right time. He's bringing exactly who he wants near and orchestrating this whole thing like a symphony. Now, if we believe in a sovereign God, we say, yes, God is orchestrating this event. Well, you have to ask the question, why is your life any less orchestrated? Who has God brought near to you? Why do you live next to that person? Why is your desk at work next to that person that it is? Why do you keep running into that person over and over and over again at the grocery store? We have to ask ourselves, are we ready for God's power if we don't think that the world around us is an audience? And secondly, I think we express that unreadiness when we say, okay, well, I know there's people that need to, um, to hear the gospel around me, but I don't feel called and I don't feel gifted, okay? We have to make a distinction between calling and gifting because I've, I've heard that a number of times. People say, I don't feel, I don't feel called because I'm, I'm not gifted in evangelism. Quite frankly, yes, there's a gift of evangelism, but it's so often misunderstood. That comes from Ephesians 4. Whenever God says he, to some, he gives the gift of evangelism. Now, what's that in the context of? It's in the context of the leadership of the church, where God says, I, to some, I give apostles. To some, I make shepherds. To some, I give the gift, make evangelists. To some, uh, shepherds. To some, teachers. All of them, as the leaders of the church, God equips. So what? So they can go and equip the saints for ministry. Why? Because mission is all of our callings if we call ourselves Christian. It's not something that certain people should do because they're gifted at it. No, certain people are gifted at it so they can teach you how to do it. And we often think that it's subjective. It's discretionary. And yet we look in this passage in the Spirit, if you were there, it would have fallen on you too. If the Spirit falls now in the same way, it fills everyone because we are all called to that empowering purpose of God. And if you go a little bit further with that same idea, well, I don't feel called or gifted, let's remember who these people are here. The text goes out of its way to actually remind us that, these, that everyone there that heard the 120 speak recognized that they were Galileans. Now, how do they know they were Galileans? Well, because Galileans speak with an accent, all right? Remember when Peter's in the courtyard following Jesus, they say, your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean, you follow Jesus. And so they could pick him out of a crowd and they knew who they were. And so it's important that it's trying to get us to recognize that they're Galileans because these are uneducated, blue-collar people. Okay, where I'm from, we call them some folks, all right? These are people that use the word y'all 
They called it uh, Walmarts, you know, they used the word skedaddle, and I reckon, you know, these are not people that have a lot of letters after their names. These are simple people. And if God uses them, then Pentecost pushes us to ask a question. If God empowers these people to speak in a language that's not their own, then why would he not empower you to speak in a language that you do know? Why is this not an invitation to experience the power that these uneducated nobodies experienced? Where does it say that that gift, that opportunity to experience that power of the Spirit was a one-time thing? Pentecost is not simply about tongues. It's about God and his commitment to empower his people to take care of that, to accomplish that mission. So we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for God's power if we are not willing to open our mouth? And lastly, just at the end of the passage, I think perhaps maybe we don't engage in that mission because we're afraid of rejection. These people saw the powerful work of God, and it says that they still mocked, and they called it drunkenness. We can't really adopt God's purposes unless we're willing to be rejected and mocked, because we will be. Our Savior was, and so will we. And perhaps the reason we fear that rejection is really because we value more than anything presenting a certain image to the world around us. And the Spirit does not do our image any favors. Because when we step out in faith and the things that we do and say begin to look crazy to the worldly mind. And so when we value image above everything else, we say, well, you know, when we value image, I want to be known as a successful business person. I want to be seen as a socialite, someone who's well-connected. I want me and my spouse to be seen as a power couple rather than someone who is radically committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, and we make that mistake of valuing our image above the cause of Jesus, then we really have to recognize, are we not making the same mistake as they made at Babel? Is that we're really just trying to make our own name great rather than choosing to make the name of God great in our lives? Pentecost, Pentecost is an invitation to experience God in a way that we don't often hear. To experience God uh, in a new and fresh way. To remind us that God is committed to his purpose to proclaim Jesus Christ above all else. And when we lay hold of that purpose, will he not empower us to do so? Pentecost challenges us to ask that question. How might God empower us when we truly lay hold of his purposes? Acts tells us in Acts 2, and as we move forward, it tells us that Christ's purpose, God's purpose, is worth living for, and it tells us the power that he offers to us is worth waiting for. Are you ready? Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that we, uh, we're bad at waiting, we're bad at being ready, and we need your, your, your goodness evidenced in the spirit that you give to us to rouse us from our sleep. Wake us up to the reality of what you are doing in the world. That in Acts 2, you began this new work of ushering in your kingdom. And that is your priority above all else. And so we ask that you would help us to make it our priority. Help us long to be a people of power. Help us long to be like our Savior and to seek to offer you to the world and that we would pour ourselves out just like he did for their good and our sake. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. I'd ask those who are helping to serve communion to come forward.
If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, this table is for you. As we come, we recognize that we have this bread and this wine because we serve a missionary God. And we too, as we come in faith and receive the bread and the wine, we recognize that his life and the shape and pattern of his life is we're called to make that the shape and pattern of ours. But to eat this bread and drink this wine, we too might pour ourselves out for one another and for the world around us so that the name of Christ might be made known. Now, if you are not a believer in Jesus, we ask that you refrain from this table. We also ask that if you are a professing Christian, but there's sin in your life that you are not willing to let go of, we also ask that you might pause and consider as to whether or not you are ready to come and receive this meal. Because when the Apostle Paul says to eat and drink this bread and this wine in a manner that's unworthy is to eat and drink judgment upon our own head, he first writes that to Christians, to those that are not taking what this meal represents seriously. And we don't say that to be mean, but we also know that perhaps in that hunger and knowing that right now this table is not for you, that the Spirit would work in your heart and in your life. But if you come by faith, then let us come with thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you promised to meet us at this table. And we trust that this, this meal is not powerful because of those who serve it or because of our faith, but because the Spirit is here making it effectual in our hearts to nourish us in our journey to that city whose maker and builder is God. We ask that as we journey, your purposes would be ours and that we would entrust ourselves to you and that all that you have for us, we would receive in faith. We ask that in your precious name. Amen.